welcome everybody. This is the Travel and Adventure Podcast. This is Sam Bretzman, and on the Skype call with me is Kathy O'Dowd. Uh, Kathy is a speaker, adventurer, author, Everest summiter, and she runs uh, the website The Business of Adventure. Um, so, Kathy, thank you for uh, taking a little time to talk with me. Um, so, I'm delighted to join you. Uh, so first, I wanted to uh, ask you something, uh, ask you about something that you mentioned in an email to me uh, when we first, I mean, when we were emailing and setting this up, um, and then I want to hear a little bit about the business of adventure, uh, and then uh-huh. we'll wrap up with some general questions on on climbing and and Everest. But to start, okay. yeah. So to start. Um, First, you were the first woman to climb Everest from both sides, which is an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> um, and it's obviously a, a really headline-grabbing thing to do. Uh, but in our emails, you had mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. You said, on one hand, it's provided the foundation to the career I've built. On the other, it has changed hugely since I climbed it, and it can feel a bit of an anchor dragging me backwards. Um, I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit more uh, one how has it changed and how has it been uh, and anchored you at different points in time right well let's put it in its its historical context in a sense so my first ascent was 1996 mm-hmm. and my my second successful ascent there was a a failure in between was 1999 so what is that nine you know, the second send was 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I climbed it right at the beginning of what would become the commercial era. So 96 was probably one of the very first years where a number of expeditions were on the same route at the same time. Okay. And although then most of the expeditions were still private or the sort of classic national expedition, which is what I was on, the first South African one. Mm-hmm. A handful were beginning to be guided. Okay. So, you know, not a not a team as such, but individual clients who've bought a place on the expedition. Gotcha. And of course, it got it, the ninety six one went spectacularly wrong. There was this huge storm, and. Five people were killed, including two famous guides. And also, it was also the beginning of the instant media age. Mm-hmm. You know, before then, news about Everest expeditions kind of trickled out afterwards for a handful of people who cared. Mm-hmm. But that big storm, because there were some famous people on it, and because this was the first season the teams had websites, mm-hmm. they ran from base camp. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that there was almost live news. And it was the first time that Everest kind of went what we would now call viral in world media. Uh-huh. The drama of death and disaster playing out kind of hour by hour. So although I didn't realize it at the time, I climbed it at sort of a pivotal moment of change. Uh-huh. And everybody said back then, oh, too many teams. You know, crowding was one of the the danger flashpoints. And they're not wrong, but it was a fraction of the climbers who are on it now. Now there are four times as many climbers every season. Every team, almost every team, is now commercial. 
you know, they've just released the luxury offer for 2018, $130,000 a person, <laughs> helicopter to base camp, four private Sherpas with you at all times, private chef at all camps, 12 bottles of oxygen. It's designed for the Asian luxury market. Okay. And, and the thing is, it's even segmented. So that the Asian luxury market want a private chef at Camp 4. The American luxury market, which is the, the time-pressed wealthy businessmen who are do, doing it as basically a midlife crisis, <laughs> they want it to be short. They can only take three weeks of leave. So they're being offered products that are all about, oh, we'll get you to acclimatize in America first with fancy acclimatization tents and this and that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll offer you an express service up Everest. We'll try and push them up in just a handful of weeks. Mm. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's so different from when I just kind of thought I was going climbing. <laughs> no, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I personally, I'm, I don't, that, that world of climbing that you're talking about and the, the high-end luxury and, uh, and all of that is not a world that I'm I'm involved in, but it's that's fascinating. Because um, when you so when you first went in '96, it was none that none of that really existed. Because you, I mean, so you were uh, just repeating what you had said, but you were part of the first. Well, I don't maybe it wasn't the first, but was it the first South African national? Uh, it was the first South African expedition. Okay. Yes. And then how? Mm-hmm. Sorry, go no. ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask how how big was that team that you were with? Oh, complicated. <laughs> uh, because, okay, a team of 11, of which four were Sherpas. Uh, yeah, that's right. Seven from South Africa. But because it was a horrendous expedition, uh, with a super incredible amount of infighting, mm. um, three of the seven members walked out before we got to base camp. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> which was fairly dramatic. No, no kidding. <laughs> it, that being said, I mean, when I think about what Everest has meant to the 20-year career that came since, mm-hmm. obviously being on the Everest on a season that was so dramatic and got such media coverage was useful because it meant a lot of South Africans who wouldn't normally have cared about mountain climbing mm-hmm. started to follow along. But it wasn't just the big storm. It was all this infighting. Because mm-hmm. we had a journalist from a big Sunday newspaper. Mm-hmm. And he made quite sure to report <laughs> every single, you know, I'm sure he did. detail about the infighting. Uh, so on one hand, we got all this publicity. A lot of it was bad, but you know, there's perhaps some truth, not entirely, but there's some truth in all publicity is good publicity. Sure. And the other thing was this very difficult season combined with all this infighting in the group gave me a really interesting story afterwards, because the truth is Good travel stories, books, speeches, um, films are about things going wrong. 
if you have a brilliant plan and you execute it perfectly in ideal weather and you all come home as friends, nobody cares. That's not interesting. No. no. <laughs> you have time, but nobody else cares. Yeah. Almost all great adventure stories are about things going dramatically wrong. And I had this example that combined death and drama on the mountain with some really interesting insights into why so-called professional adults who share a passion are capable of self-sabotaging the project. Mm. And that made such a great case study for corporate clients. I That's really interesting. And it actually provides a really good kind of leeway into, or lead into what I, I'm most interested in talking with you about, which is how you've been able to tie your experiences on Everest, your experiences in climbing into into a corporate business culture. And so there's two areas I'd like to hit. The first is about business of adventure and then a little bit just on your general career speaking, being an author. Um, but so first on the business of adventure, um, so this is a, a company that you started. It's You can find it at thebusinessofadventure.com and you are showing people how they can basically fund their their adventures or their 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 I'll, I'll let you explain it. Can you, what what is the yes. business of adventure about? Uh, about? Okay. Let me take take you back a step. This is quite a new project. It's less than a year old. Okay. It's it's not a money maker. It's it's a side hustle, but it's not even a side hustle that actually makes any money. <laughs> uh, but it does have a purpose. So it, it's, as you said, it's designed to help adventurers uh, answer that awkward question, how are you going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of inspirational stuff around at the moment. You know, if you dream it, you can do it and push your fears to one side and, st- you know, stride into the world with $25 in your back pocket and you're like, yeah, that's all very well. But things go wrong uh, and things cost money. And you'll probably have a better time if you actually have some financing behind you. Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole question of of what are you going to do when you come home again? Uh, So I wanted a thoroughly pragmatic website that talks about money. And because the way most adventurers do it, you do it in two stages. To some extent, you raise money beforehand. Mm -hmm if you're lucky, uh, or you may just do it on your own own savings, or you may go into debt. And then your second shot at money is afterwards, Mm -hmm. when you can basically monetize what you've done, which can be selling speeches, selling books, selling films, uh, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then within those two time slots, there are a set of different ways, basically eight ways, that adventurers find money. And almost everybody has their own tapestry of those different ways, more of some, less of the other, some things support other things, Mm -hmm. which on one hand makes it very flexible. You can play to your own strengths. You can, uh, you can design your own financial tapestry, but it also makes it deeply confusing. Mm -hmm. Kind of, especially if you don't know a lot about it yet, because Mm -hmm. everybody's model is different. And, Nobody's necessarily explaining their model, and lots of people are doing the fake it till they make it thing. Mm-hmm. 
whereby they're probably making a lot less money than they imply or actually their partner brings in money or their parents are subsidizing them or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's terribly opaque. So I wanted something that was just uh, really straightforward. How are you going to pay for it? Let's talk about the options. Um, and it's fun because I get to ask people interesting, nosy questions about money. <laughs> I get to interview, you know, people who will answer an email from me because I have a tagline, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's put me in touch with a lot of younger adventurers. So I'm kind of, you know, who's doing what and things have changed. You know, the whole social media thing, crowdfunding, um, social influencer. There are a lot of ways in which the financial space has shifted. Uh-huh. But there's certain things that hold true. Corporate sponsorship holds true. The fact that the, the corporate speaking circuit is probably the best moneymaker, that holds true. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was a way of just get re-engaging with the adventure community. So, the, you mentioned eight key areas that people can find funding. And those are, you have social influence, project sponsorship, speaking, crowdfunding, brand ambassador, adventure grants, writing and images um if someone is just like starting out and they're they're completely fresh what would be like the first two or three things you would direct them to invest their time into Mm, okay three ideas build skills interesting adventure is risky that's why it's called an adventure, not a holiday. <laughs> Cope managing risk requires skill. Skill mm-hmm. is acquired over time. Basically, there is no instant shortcut. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you should pay a guide a lot of money to drag you up back on Kagua. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sticking to climbing examples sure. because it's, it's my personal area. You're going to learn a lot like that, and you're going to have spent a ridiculous amount of money. Um, so build skills. There are lots of clubs, many of them climbing, but not only climbing, that offer subsidized training courses for skills courses and that offer grants, particularly for young people. And they like people who are setting out on their first independent adventure. Mm -hmm. For God's sake, if you are young, Get the youth grants. Don't only realize when you're 30 and discover you've aged out of half of the grants that are available. And don't be put off when they say they want you to go and do a go somewhere uh, new. Uh, you know, they're not going to give you a grant to go and be the hundred millionth person to climb Mont Blanc, for example. <laughs> they might give you a grant to go to somewhere like Tajikistan to just go and climb some very easy peaks in a valley that as far as you can work out, no one's ever been into before. Uh Um, And you will learn so much by putting together your own modest remote adventure instead of, you know, chasing other people up Elbrus, which is the highest mountain in Europe or something like that. Uh So build skills and chase adventure grants would be one. Mm-hmm. The second would be, honestly, pay for it yourself. Uh, take something with a modest budget, save up the money, do it yourself, and then try and leverage that adventure afterwards. 
so that you then can do something bigger and start chasing other people's money for the second time round. Mm -hmm. You have much more credibility once you've done something. You have much more confidence. And you can start to sell that first adventure in modest ways, speeches to adventure clubs or local rotary clubs. Uh, maybe you can self-publish a little book about it. Maybe you can sell some articles to outdoor magazines. Maybe you can sell some photographs. Uh, work your way into the industry bit by bit rather than deciding you, you need to do the $100,000 <laughs> mega expedition. Um yeah, I think those are my, my two tips for starting out. Well, that's fantastic. I have one question on adventure grants. Is there... Um, why do people give adventure grants? This, I'm not familiar with, with this at all. And so is it just people who who like adventure and want to be able to help support other people in, in doing that? Or is there more to that? Okay. Uh, a number of them are clubs, outdoor clubs, and although some of their grants are only for their own members, but it's normally worth joining these clubs. You have membership costs $20, and the grant is worth $2,000. Mm -hmm. Join the club. <laughs> and they've probably got subsidized training as well. Uh, so some of them are clubs. Some of them are the big adventure institutions of the country. So in America, it's the Alpine Club. Okay, it's a club. But in <laughs> Britain, for example, there's the Mount Everest Foundation. And this is a, a trust that was set up with the money that was left over from the British expedition that did the first ascent of Everest. And they put the money into the, a trust. And there's income, there's yearly income, which they give away. Hmm. They give away something like £40,000 in adventure grant money every year. And most people who meet their, their criteria, a lot of people send in applications that don't meet the criteria. You've got to read the small print. Mm -hmm. But if you meet the criteria, you will almost always get money. Another common one are um, memorial grants. Basically, young climbers or young adventurers get killed. Mm -hmm. And their parents uh, set up memorial grants in their name. Gotcha. So okay. there are a number of those uh, available. Then we've, we're getting uh, companies who are beginning to realize that it's a fun way to get social media traction. Mm -hmm. So there's a company in England called Altum Consulting. They do personnel recruitment. But once a year, they run a competition. I think they give out about 5,000 pounds. And they get a lot of social media coverage by running it. And then they get social media coverage while the adventure is happening. Mm -hmm. and, and you get kind of not just their money, but they, they provide support with media and planning and that kind of thing. So there's more and more of that happening. Yeah, I actually just saw one. There's a tent company out here that's doing uh, that, that exact thing with like a road trip in the U.S. But Exactly. I, I saw that recently as well. So, yes, more and more one-off competitions mm -hmm. um, are coming up. And the other one, sort of, at least in Britain, which I know a little better than the U.S. market, named adventurers, you know, once they stop doing headline adventures, they have an audience and they, they need something to keep those audience engaged. Mm -hmm. And some of them 
are beginning to put together smaller adventure grants because they have access to brands. They talk the brand into, you know, helping them out with a bit of money. Sure. So Tim Moss's Next Challenge grant, um, Anna McNuff's Adventure Queen grant. So, yeah, there's a lot happening in this space. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that. With uh, So I'm also interested in hearing a little bit about kind of you described it as a tapestry of weaving together different social influence and speaking and grants to, to provide a living. What has, what is your tapestry like? I know you've, you've written books and you do, do, do corporate speaking. Are those kind of the two main ways, um, for that you provide income for yourself? Yes. Basically I live off corporate speaking. It's what pays my mortgage and puts some money in the pension fund. And I have done that for since 1996. Oh, God knows. What is that, 24 years or something like that? So, you know, all that time I have never held a proper job. I've never worked for anyone else. How many? Uh, That's a pretty good career. Yeah, absolutely. How many speeches do you say you give a month? Okay, I do this reasonably modestly. I mean, I earn reasonably good money. But I'm only feeding myself and the cat, and you know I live a fairly low-cost lifestyle. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I only need to do about twenty-five speeches a year. Okay. Two a month, but I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a British woman, and of course I've gone completely blank on her name. Anyway. In the early 2000s, she was rowing the Atlantic in a two-person rowing race with her husband. Her husband turned out to be afraid of open water, Mm. which was awkward, (laughs) uh, and had to be rescued from the rowing boat. And she refused to give up. So she rowed alone, and it took her like twice as long as anyone else. But of course, she now became plucky wife who stays at sea mm-hmm. after, you know, wimpy husband gives up. The, the, the media loved it. And she turns up like 60 days late at the end of the race. And the media just adored her. And she was articulate and attractive. And, you know, she could hold her own on the stage. Mm-hmm. She's, she's Britain's most successful female corporate speaker and she says on a website she's done over a thousand corporate talks. She will be earning between five and ten thousand pounds a talk. That's okay. over five million pounds uh-huh. in speaker fees. You know, there's not a lot, not a lot of expenses in giving a speech. How did you get started? And like, do you do you work with anybody? That do you have a an agent or anything, or did you just you came back and you crafted? Uh, a dialogue or a monologue and, and then you just pitch yourself to businesses on your own? How did that process work? Getting started is so difficult. And this is where it's, it's, it's hard to give people good advice because there are, there are a set of things that you need to do, but you also need to have done something that grabbed media attention. Mm-hmm. And you need luck. So sometimes people have quite deliberately set out to do something that will get them attention. So there's a, there was a famous Swedish climber, Goran Krop, who quite deliberately set out to craft an adventure that would catch attention. But he was a superb athlete. 
you know, he basically he soloed Everest from Stockholm, mm. as in he got on his bicycle in Stockholm with his climbing kit, an Everest expedition worth of kit, and <laughs> cycled across Asia to Everest, and then soloed it. You know, it's no wonder he got attention. Uh, and some people, it's just a lightning stroke of luck. You know, you were the pilot who happened to land that plane on the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. He's in demand on the corporate speaking circuit. I'm sure he earns more from that than he does from his pilot salary. <laughs> but, you know, who knew that was going to happen in his life? Sure. Um, so there's preparation you need to do. There's luck you need to have. There's media profile you need to have. And then sometimes companies will come direct to you. So they've got to be able to find you. You've got to have a website. You've mm-hmm. got to have social media presence. Or speaker bureaus come to you and say they have corporate clients who want to hear your story. The speaker bureaus take about 35% of the fee, Mm -hmm. but they have such a great database of corporate clients. Mm -hmm. It's well worth giving them their their cut. Mm. um, Shouldn't feel that the speaker bureaus are, you know, taking an unfair cut. Sure. They're, They're very useful middlemen. So in my case, as it often does, it started out with gossip. Companies in South Africa had read the media headlines, and honestly, the guys on the executive team wanted to hear the gossip without having to go to a public show. (laughs) They were prepared to pay for me to come and give a speech in the company. And, you know, a lot of people get their 15 minutes of fame. You've won your Olympic medal. You've you've got your six months at sea. People are curious. Mm -hmm. If you want to last more than your 15 minutes of fame, now you need to craft a really good speech and you need to have a speech that isn't just about you and your adventure. It's got to have crossover value into the corporate space. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking a whole nother skill set. Sure. It's not just enough to be an adventurer. You, you've got to understand this crossover into business and you've got to be an exceedingly good presenter. Gotcha. Wonderful. Um, do you, as far as your personal career goals and where you're at, um, are you, do you still have goals and dreams set out that you're, you're reaching for? Um, yes, but not in the bucket list sense. Okay. So what I've done, which I think is more important to me is use the freedom of being self-employed, basically, and having this kind of portable career. Mm-hmm. As long as I can get to an airport and I'm, in, I'm you know, close to the major speaking markets, mm-hmm. I can more or less live where I want. So I've used that freedom and I've used the money that I, I had mostly from the speaking and got myself out of Johannesburg, South Africa, which is where I was born, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, terrible place to be a mountain climber. It's a big, big flat grass plateau. I mean, it's useless. Uh, and changed continents. I now live in the Pyrenees Mountains in the south of Europe. Uh, I live literally in the mountains. I can go out of my front door and be running in forest mountain trails <laughs> above the house. You know, Within about half an hour, I've got rock climbing, via ferratas, ski touring, um, ski resorts, uh, canyoneering, and you know, within a couple of hours, the, the Pyrenees, it's amazing. I mean, this is world-class rock climbing uh-huh. in Catalonia. This is world-class canyoning. 
This is really good ski touring all along the Pyrenees range. You know, adventure isn't a tick list that I hope to do in the future. Adventure is what happens when I open my front door <laughs> and think, shall I grab my running shoes or my climbing shoes or my ski touring boots? <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> So there's still places in the world I'd like to go, and, and there's still projects. And I mean, I'm I'm ski touring in Austria next week. I'll be rock climbing in Kalimnos in Greece next month. Um, I've got some summer trips planned. I'll be in Morocco in the autumn again. That's again, that's a rock climbing trip. Uh-huh. But I I don't feel the need to chase headline grabbing, you know, sure. hundreds of thousands of dollar expedition razzmatazzes. They're honestly exhausting and expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Out of personal curiosity, have you ever uh, climbed Kilimanjaro? I have. Oh, wonderful. When did you do that? I did it in 1995. It was actually part of, I got on the Everest expedition, the first one, as a token woman brought on at the last minute as part of a, frankly, a reality TV publicity stunt organized (laughs) by one of the sponsors who was a newspaper. Okay. And it was before we even had a word for reality TV, but it was the beginning of uh-huh. it. And that was my stroke of luck. Hmm. Uh, but it only worked because I was already a climber. I'd been climbing for nearly a decade. Uh, I'd been to the Alps and I'd the Andes on my own money. I'd, you know, scrimped around and saved and worked and kept on trying to travel and kept on trying to find expeditions to join. Mm-hmm. So as soon as this this thing went up advertising for a woman for woman to apply to join the Everest team, despite the fact that it was quite blatantly sexist and a stupid way to find <laughs> climbers for Everest. I had the experience, I had the confidence, and I could ignore the sexism to see the opportunity. And yeah, I'd be living a very different life if I hadn't done the application, got through, climbed Kilimanjaro as part of the selection, okay. and been the one who, who made it all the way through to the Everest team. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, I was I um, I was able to do Kilimanjaro in 2011, so I was just curious. I figured you probably had made your way there at some point. It's a nice mountain. I love the way it goes through all those different climatic bands. Uh-huh. You, know, you start you know, from the grasslands through to the jungle up to the alpine vegetation and finally that dreadful scree slope <laughs> <laughs> no. as you head for the, the, the top. Yeah, it, it was very enjoyable. Um, yeah. Great. Okay, well, I really appreciate you sharing all about the, the, the business side of that. Um, I, I posted to some of my friends on Facebook that I was talking to you and um, I was asking for questions. And so I have, I uh, will do kind of a, not exactly a rapid round, but I just have a number of questions on Everest and on climbing in general that will sure. shoot off and get your, your thoughts on. So first, um, Everest specific questions. Um, uh, one, a friend of mine from Kenya actually was asking, are, uh, what is the animal life like on the mountain? And do you come across anything or is that just not a part with the elevation that you're at? On the mountain itself, there virtually isn't any, essentially because there's no food and there's no running water. It's all Mm. frozen. So high up, the only thing you're going to see are birds, but you do get um, Himalayan crows 
uh, they're not actually crows, but they're kind of similar. Mm-hmm. And they can fly, you know, close to the height of Everest. Mm. So, so you'll be slogging up Everest and some bird will just slide past wide in a thermal. <laughs> Incredibly annoying. Um, the other thing we got were mice. Oh. Not, not once we're camped on the ice, but just a little bit lower down when you're still camped on rock. Mm-hmm. You know, as high as sort of over 6,000 meters. Mm-hmm. Mice. Because you know, they, you know, they turn up in the kitchen eating your food, and you're like, what are you living on for another <laughs> 11 months when there aren't any climbing teams here? But that was it. Okay. That said, I once tried to climb a new route on the east face of Everest, and we couldn't. It was too hard and too risky, and we had some time before they came back in with the yaks to fetch us. Um, and so we kind of just sat at base camp for a couple of weeks and lay in the sun, in this lovely meadow, and they were marmots. Oh. Uh, and I don't know if people know what a marmot is, but I don't know. I like a really big, fat, fluffy rabbit with a long tail and teeth like a, a rodent. Uh-huh. Um, but they had their, their young in burrows because they hibernate. And they all, the, little, the young came out of the burrows and they kind of got used to us. And we'd lie in the meadow and watch these marmot babies frolicking around, <laughs> discovering the world. It was just so sweet. That's wonderful. Anyway. Um, great. Next question. Uh, did you leave anything at the top? A flag or a token? I don't know. Is there a culture around that? Um, um, there, there is up to a point. I mean, clearly, let's face it, it's litter. Uh, so... <laughs> Best not to leave too much up there. Uh-huh. The Sherpas leave Buddhist prayer flags up there. Uh-huh. So there are always going to be, well, in the climbing season in spring, there will be prayer flags. And climbers often leave very small things on top. So I had a little uh, lapel pin with the South African flag on it. For example, mm-hmm. I left that on the top. But the truth is that the winds will strip everything off the top. Mm. So none of that is actually going to stay there all that long. The only thing that's semi-permanent, there's a tripod the Americans put up there as part of measuring the height. But even that, the summit itself is snow, and it rises and lowers mm-hmm. you know, kind of through the year, and it moves. And the tripod is busy sliding off down the side, <laughs> and it, it will eventually go. The mountain does very slowly shift and change. Got it. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit of briefly about what did you do to train and prepare for Everest? Um, I mean, I know you had been climbing mountains before. You meant, uh, We were just talking about Kilimanjaro. Was that like an official part of your training, or, or how did you go about that? Well, that Everest, the first Everest trip was an anomaly because I, they only ran this competition in November, we went to Kilimanjaro across New Year's Eve, and I only knew I was going to Everest in January, and we left in March. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it actually tells you something about Everest. We're talking endurance fitness. Uh-huh. And if you already have a fairly high level, and you're not you know, climbing the extreme end of Everest where you're trying to do a new route with, you know, really technically difficult climbing, which, which you can do on Everest. If you're doing the standard routes, then you simply need to be a thoroughly fit endurance athlete while being able to carry a rucksack. 
I have been out with people who do triathlons and things, very fit, but not used to carrying weight on their back. Mm-hmm. So yeah, endurance fitness, be able to carry weight, and particularly for women, possibly a certain amount of specific upper body strength training, because there's quite a lot of hauling up on ropes and hauling up on your ice axes and hauling rucksacks around, uh, where you could do with a bit of upper body strength training. Got it. And then, but that's that's one aspect. The other two aspects are then skill. You know, needing to know how to use crampons and ice axes and ropes and recognize avalanche slopes and navigate and read weather. You know, there's a whole skill side, and then there's a massive mental aspect to it. It's quite possible to be physically good enough and crumble mentally. Got it. Understood. Um. Thank you. Next question. Uh, cost of Everest, uh, roughly? Like if someone is, in, like the base cost, if I, if I wanted to go next year, what would that cost me to do? Um, almost impossible to answer mm. in the sense that you, suppose you go, suppose you are good enough to go alone. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, this happens occasionally. So as in, Go alone. You don't need Sherpa support. You're not using oxygen. You go to the north side, the Chinese side, which is a bit cheaper. So all you need is your permit, some very basic travel costs. Um, if you're this good, you you already own your equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're probably looking at that. dollars $30, $30,000 would put all of that together. Okay. On the other hand, you can buy a place on a commercial expedition uh, the top end of the market, as I said at the beginning, $130,000. Uh-huh. Bottom end of the market, um, about $30,000. But in a sense, the less you pay, the more they expect you to actually be a pretty experienced, competent climber already. Okay. So it's like, are you good enough? to go on to one of the cheaper commercial expeditions. And then, of course, there are the people who just cash your check. And then if you aren't good enough, they just shrug and say no refunds. (laughs) (laughs) You you do get what you pay for if you're going to go on the commercial side. Sure. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Favorite non-Everest hike, if you can pick one. Oh, that's... That's so hard. I just don't do lists. I mean, every, <laughs> every trip, it depends on, on the weather and the company and how successful you were and what you learned. And sometimes the ones where you failed dramatically but survived and sorted it all out are the most interesting in retrospect. Mm. Um, but one that I did reasonably recently, we, we had about four weeks and we went multi-pitch rock climbing trad rock climbing on the Lofoten Islands of Norway in midsummer. So this is 24-hour daylight because uh-huh. it's um, in the Arctic Circle. And it's these giant granite cliff faces that come straight out of the sea on the string of islands that make up the Lofoten archipelago. And we were so lucky with the weather. And I was climbing with somebody I really like. Mm-hmm. And just all of that um, put together meant that that was a magical trip. So yeah, the Photon Islands. I definitely recommend them. Got it. Got it. Um, 
Next thing. So this is, I had a, a friend of mine who's a, she's very active. She's actually with me on the Kilimanjaro hike a, a number uh-huh. of years ago. Um, but she had questions specifically more geared in the, uh, in the woman, female side of things and difficulties that may be more women centric. Um, so I'm just going to read what she wrote and then you can um, answer it how you, how you would like. But she said, there are many physical and cultural complexities to women hiking in the mountains. Some of these will be difficult questions to ask, but the answers are so very helpful to the rest of us. Uh, How did these women manage their menses, uh, menstruation cycles while on the mountain? Uh, In quotes, pack it out is a little more complicated for us. Um, Male climbers have the added benefit of being able to empty their bladder while standing up. This is tough for women who often have to find, find an excluded area, turn tail to the wind, drop layers. Did you use any female urinal devices? Women, sorry, we can go back. Um, I'm going to read over all of them and then we can go back and and answer them individually. Women also tend to get colder than men. How did they deal with the cold at night and while waiting in the queues on the mountain? Um, How did you manage bathroom issues discreetly and in mixed gender company? Um, And then did you deal with any cultural issues around being a woman in a male-dominated climbing culture and a male-dominated Sherpa culture? Did this negatively influence uh, your ability to get a weather window or in the climbing queue, lower rank than other climbers, poor tent selection sites, things like that? So that was the whole thing. All right. When When this is over, I'm going to tweet a link to you to share with her. Okay. Because I've got some friends who are actually running a survey about um, women and periods on expeditions. Cool. And how, how women deal with them. And, and But honestly, I've never found it to be a, a huge problem. I'm lucky. I have reasonably light periods, mm-hmm. and I just use tampons, and I pack the tampons out. Ziploc plastic bag. Got it. You know? uh, so... I, I appreciate it's it, it's harder for women who just have crippling period pain mm-hmm. and who have like incredibly heavy uh, periods. So yeah, I was lucky. Uh, I've never encountered any real problems with it as far as all bathroom related stuff. I mean, there's some cases where you have to go literally right where you are. You take skiing. You know, I do a lot of backcountry skiing. Mm-hmm. If the stuff's powder deep, I mean, thigh deep powder, mm-hmm. I can't even take my skis off. <laughs> and there's certainly no bushes or bolts. I'm squatting between my skis. And the boys need to look in the other direction. <laughs> no, not my problem. <laughs> you know, I do what needs to be done. Uh-huh. And the boys need to get on board and be cooperative about it. Sure. Uh, so I think just being completely pragmatic. It's really useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of those stand-up funnels for women, I tried once. They're dreadful. Do not work for me. Got it. Um, I just I just squat, and yes, you know, in occasions you've got wind drift and howling wind up your backside, but hey, you just go as fast as you can. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to tents at night, we all use pee bottles. Nobody's going outside at night. Okay. And um, over here they're called Nalgene. Uh-huh. Wide mouth Nalgene bottle. Works perfectly fine for a woman. You know, it takes a time or two to work out how it works, and I've been doing that for 20 years uh, without a problem. 
Got it. Uh, just don't mix up your water bottle and your people. <laughs> no, which is good, good tip. <laughs> and that that being said, I've had it go wrong. Um, your recent last big expedition, Mount Logan on skis. So this is a twenty thousand foot peak in Canada. Uh, because I met perimenopausal. Now they're gone irregular, and my flow isn't nearly as predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got caught by surprise by a kind of Niagara Falls onset <laughs> out of the blue. And Jesus Christ, at four and a half thousand meters, pulling a sled in heat, feeling sick as hell. And eventually, my teammates took some of my load. I had blood all over my salopettes. Mm. And when we got down, I was sharing a tent with a girl and a guy, and I just told them. I told them what had happened, and I told them to go and sit outside in the sun because <laughs> I would need to boil some water and do some washing. So I did. It's a thing. It happens. It's how we perpetuate the human race. Yeah, no, but it's super. I mean, I'm uh, thank you for for sharing because I know. I mean, that's obviously isn't a like a topic that's discussed much, but something that every woman has to deal with, and so it's helpful to just hear your experience. Um, and then uh, uh, to the, um, the kind of last thing she wrote, were there any cultural issues with being a woman in a more male-dominated climbing culture that you experienced, or was that all? I mean, you had talked to, I mean, I know just how you got on the first South African trip was more of a media play than anything else, um, but did that affect anything on the actual climb? Overall, I encountered a little bit of sexism, certainly uh, maybe early on in the climbing community. Uh, Perhaps just as simple as woman climbers tending to be kind of, just people would assume you were were somebody's girlfriend rather than a climber in your own right. Mm. And also looking back, I've often been sort of the only woman on a trip, Mm -hmm. an expedition, a climbing trip, and there was a certain thing about being the cool girl who was cool enough to hang with the guys. And you sort of got to feel a little bit special in that category. And it's only in retrospect that I realized it was actually fairly sexist to, first of all, say that most women weren't cool enough to qualify. And somehow that you had to be play up male characteristics to qualify for the cool category. Mm-hmm. You, know, you couldn't be too feminine. You couldn't burst into tears. You, you couldn't, you know, be, be insecure or something. Um, so I think things that at the time felt okay, in retrospect, I realized were probably more sexist than I appreciated. But the, actually, the fact remains, most of the time in 35 years, I've had a very good time with, with utterly lovely men who have almost always lived up to my expectations. I've expected them to behave well, and they have. Mm-hmm. So by and large, I've had a very good time, and the vast majority of men I've climbed with have been absolutely lovely and have treated me as just a great member of the team, which is the same way I treated them. And when, it, when, when people got tired or weak or weepy or stressed or cross, we've helped each other out. Um, what I am enjoying right now is seeing... Uh, how many more women are coming into the outdoor space mm-hmm. and how uh, supportive they are. It's no longer about being the one woman with a group of guys. There are all these women in pairs and groups and teams just getting out there and, and doing their own thing. Um, 
I'm going to say at the risk of sounding old, uh, <laughs> that I think some of these women's groups are a little too supportive and they could do with being a little more pushy and ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, maybe if you're not confident in the outdoor space, it's a good stepping stone, but I, I wouldn't want to see women get stuck there. Okay. That's why I think in the end, mixed, mixed gender teams are great. Uh, as a massive generalization, the men probably bring slightly more competitiveness and pushiness to the group. Mm-hmm. Women, mass generalization here, women <laughs> often bring uh, a little more collaboration and teamwork and slightly more sensible attitude to risk. Sure. Uh, that being said, I take way more risks than plenty of men I know. So, <laughs> and I'm a lot stronger than plenty of men I, I ski and climb with. Uh, so it's a generalization. Yeah. Mixed, mixed gender teams. It brings out the best in all of us. Cool. Great. I have uh, two more questions for you. Uh, first one, could you give two to three tips for people that are just beginning for like climbing and hiking? Um to uh, it could be a motivational thing it could be practical like hey make sure you have this and that um but do you have any any thoughts on that right okay don't buy into the consumer gear culture that has come up in the last 10 years Mm. uh much as i love the outdoor equipment that's now available to us there is a ridiculous amount of it it's horribly expensive Mm -hmm. and they've gone and commoditized every single thing in ways that just aren't necessary. You know, just, it is okay to hike in jeans. (laughs) Um, You know, obviously I wouldn't suggest you go climbing in the Andes in your jeans, but hey, people have done it. Uh, It it is okay to take a city rucksack on your first backcountry hike. Uh, it is actually okay to just wear a pair of trainers. And once you start needing slightly more specialized stuff, particularly when you're still working out what specialized stuff you need, buy it secondhand. You know, there are so many websites and Facebook groups and, and now for people to, to sell gear on. Mm-hmm. Do not think you need some multi-hundred dollar jacket from some top brand <laughs> in order to go and walk. You don't. Uh, then clubs I think things are a lot safer than they used to be I watch climbers in the outdoors and they've all gone through commercial training courses you know they learn to indoor climb they learn to follow they learn to lead then they were allowed to outdoor climb you know in my day we just went outdoors because indoors wasn't a thing uh-huh. and we learned to climb by following people who were better than us and we learned their mistakes as well as their their strengths Uh, but there's a certain feeling I think that the only way to learn is to buy commercial qualifications or to pay commercial guides join clubs they almost all have subsidized training they probably have adventure grants they probably have club meets where you can go with people who are better than you which is the best way to learn and you'll make new friends the biggest challenge really if you're trying to build experience, is who do you go with? Mm-hmm. It's finding a partner. Because so many of these things, kind of both for fun and safety, you don't really want to be out there on your own. So yeah, uh, join clubs. And then 
build experience step by step. Don't go from the couch to Everest. <laughs> you know, uh, I know it can feel like, yeah, well, this weekend I just went hiking. That's not terribly impressive. Uh, but next weekend, you'll go slightly further. A year from now, you'll be hiking longer and higher and more remote. Five years from now, you will have an amazing body of experience and confidence and contact. And now you're somewhere deep in the back end of China doing something wildly adventurous. Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's step by step, you know, both on the hike and in, in building your strength, your confidence, your skill and, and your adventure career. I love that. That's great. Last question for you. Um, could you give one of the bigger life lessons that you have learned through your hiking and climbing? It doesn't necessarily have to be related to Everest, but just climbing, adventure in general that you've been able to apply to your to your just life. Um, that I'm capable of a lot more than I thought I was when I was a young woman. I think because I had a reasonably sort of sheltered suburban middle class upbringing uh, it, it took a while to find my feet in the outdoor space and feel that um, I deserved to be there mm-hmm. and I knew what I was doing out there and I took that confidence from the outdoor space then back into everything else I did I think I've led a bigger braver more successful life because of the confidence building that I got and still get uh, from from doing adventures in the outdoors. I think the other thing I've got from it is living a more considered life because I do things that are dangerous. You know, I have had a reasonable number of friends killed mm. uh, climbing or skiing. And, you know, every year or two I go back and retrain around various of the key issues, whether it's backcountry medicine or avalanche awareness or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. rope rescue skills. Uh, It's meant that I had to really think about why do I do this? How much risk do I consider acceptable? What is the reward I'm getting in return for taking these risks? And I think it's helped me go through life more purposeful about what I want out of life and what I'm prepared to put in to get it. Whereas I think some people can end up just being kind of buffeted along reacting to what happens to them. I'm not saying, I'm not a 20-year planner. Mm -hmm. A lot of the best things in my life have come from the unexpected opportunity or the stroke of luck. But I have tried to be purposeful about recognizing those opportunities, having the skill and the work ethic to make the most of them, and then trying to ride them towards the next interesting opportunity. And I feel as if all of that confident the skill and the the thoughtfulness has come out of my experience with adventure wonderful that's a fantastic fantastic answer um kathy thank you very much for your time today i i greatly appreciate it uh this is again kathy o'dowd um you can find her she has a website uh kathy o'dowd.com that is c-a-t-h-y-o-d-o-w-d.com um and she also runs the business of adventure.com uh kathy are there any other uh places you want people to to find you or any other things you want to plug here uh yes the two places where i hang out on a 
relatively daily basis on Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. So if you want to follow along uh, the speeches and the adventures and a big black fluffy cat, (laughs) uh, all of that is happening. Both of them are at Kathy O'Dowd, C-A-T-H-Y-O-D-O-W-D. Wonderful. Um, Well, Kathy, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been great fun. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Have a nice day. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Travel and Adventure podcast. This is Sam again. I hope you all have a great day. You can find all the links that were talked about in the show notes. See ya. Thank you.